Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. My name is Rain Bennett. I am your host, and my job is to help you deepen your connections, increase your sales, and serve your audiences better. Every Tuesday morning, I send out a quick storytelling tip to my newsletter subscribers. I show you techniques I've learned along my journey and used in my own stories, as well as those of my clients. But most importantly, I leave you with tangible takeaways that you can apply to your brand storytelling immediately. Oh, well, actually, more importantly than that, it's free. If this would help you, sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. I know a lot of the listeners to the show are public speakers or they want to become public speakers, but the problem that many experienced and aspiring professional speakers face is that they simply don't have the time to grow their business the way they would like. And look, I get it. I've been there. Maybe you're there right now. That's why I started using the team at Virtual Campfires to provide me with leads to events and conferences that are a good fit for my message. So they send me all the relevant details I need to immediately reach out and start a conversation with those decision makers. And they've worked with hundreds of speakers to provide tens of thousands of event leads, and it's easy to see why. Outsourcing this time-consuming step has saved me hours and hours of scanning Google and lets me go faster towards my goal of more events, more audiences, and more impact. All you need to do is email leads at virtualcampfires.com to see how their lead subscription business can help you the same way it's helped me. Again, that's leads at virtualcampfires.com. Let them help you tell more great stories and get paid for it. Listen, if you want to be an artist or a writer or a filmmaker or an entrepreneur or a maker of anything of any kind, it is going to be extremely challenging. 
And the thing that creates the biggest challenge of all is that voice in the back of our heads, that story that we tell ourselves, that limiting belief that makes us think that we can't do something or we won't be able to achieve our dreams. It is going to prevent you from taking the steps that you need to do the thing. At its worst, you don't even try. You go your whole life with that burning desire in your heart and you don't even give it a shot. You don't even swing to try to put that thing out to the world. But what might even be worse is that you do finally take action. You start the thing. You get all excited. But then you don't know how to trudge through the tough parts. And you don't finish it and you just leave it out there. That might be even more tragic. And at its best, you do chase the thing. You do create it. You do put it out there to the world. But you can't do the work daily and consistently for you to make it a sustainable practice and become a professional to get paid and build a life and a livelihood based on your passion. What's up, storytellers? Welcome back to the Storytelling Lab. This is Season 9. This is Episode 124. And I have the one and only Stephen Pressfield on the show today. Stephen calls this force, this story that we tell ourselves, the resistance. And Steve has faced the resistance his whole life, his whole career. He still faces it to this day, and that is the point. So do I. So do you. So do any creators and any makers on this earth because the resistance is inherent to the journey. We will always have darkness with the light. That resistance shows up every single day. And there is only one way to defeat it. And that is for you to sit down and do the work. And this is all things that I've learned from Steve's work over the years. Steve is the writer of The War of Art and a series of books, Do the Work, Turning Pro, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be, all telling us the same thing of how to defeat this eternal resistance that we are going to face every day if we want to create something beautiful and put it out to the world. Stephen has just released Government Cheese, his memoir, which documents his 27-year journey to publishing his first book. Steve did the work for 27 years, and he still does it 20 years later to continue to bring us the beautiful stories, the beautiful content, and the beautiful inspiration that he does. If you are looking for inspiration, if you are looking for the roadmap, for you to follow, this book is it. This conversation that I had with him was so powerful. And I've I've listened to him for, for years now. And anytime I do, I get pumped. But to have him on the show, I was so grateful to be able to have this conversation with him. A lot of, I'll go ahead and say a lot of the book is about North Carolina. So I take personal pleasure in that, being a North Carolina boy. But it is all about how to go down that road, how to make it down the path of achieving your dreams. And the way to do that is through leveraging and using the power, the insight, and the guidance of mentors along your journey. And this story, this book, is about all the different mentors that he's had along his journey. And not all of them were writing mentors. I have been waiting to have this chat with Stephen for a long time, and I have been dying for the chance to bring it to you. So, here is my conversation with Stephen Pressfield, and I hope that you love it.
I appreciate you being here. I know we've been trying to make this happen for a while, so I appreciate your flexibility uh, over the. It's All it's right, been a few you. months thanks now, for Steve. Me, it's great to be here. <laughs> uh, last time we talked, or when we talked uh, briefly, uh, setting this up, I, I told you, and I, I want to tell you again, at least uh, documented that uh, I love the book, but particularly or, or specifically from my personal journey, what resonated uh, quite a bit was just the the affection in which you spoke uh, spoke about Eastern North Carolina. So you and I have already talked about like I live in Durham now and much of your life or, or at least the influence of your life was from your time in Durham, which I love. But what I loved even more was, and you specifically ended on this, and that's where the government cheese title comes from, talking about and describing these flatlands, coastal plain, eastern North Carolina towns. I'm originally from Little Washington, and people from Durham up here don't know where Roper and Bellhaven <laughs> and Plymouth is, and so that hit very, very close to home. Yeah, those are just such charming towns, or at least they used to be when, you know, in, in the book what I talk about is that... Uh, I was driving trucks for a, a company based in Durham, and one of the loads that we used to deliver was surplus food to the little towns, you know, out there in eastern North Carolina on the coast. And um, it was just such a uh, a charming, you know, you got into a whole other world. You know, the the roads became two lanes. There was no bypasses, no freeways, and uh, it was a drive that you would make in the middle of the night to arrive at these little churches that uh, always had unpaved lots and were mostly black churches mm -hmm. with, um, and I don't know what the people's, I guess it was a lot of sharecropping going on at mm -hmm. that time, maybe still is, and uh, but just the country out there is so pretty. The live oaks, the Spanish moss growing from the live oaks, the great, you know, there's always water, you know, like a bay or an inlet or a sound or something totally. like that, Pamlico Sound, and shrimp boats or whatever coming and yeah. going. It's just really, it's just charming as hell, even though it may be a hard scrabble life to make a living there. Yeah. And that, but the towns were just so, so uh, sweet and charming. It was just a great thing to to be there. Yeah, basically farming and fishing, and it's yeah. been that way for hundreds of years down there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's one of those things where some of those places are growing. Like my hometown now has like rooftop bars and breweries, and it's wild uh -huh. to see. But most of them have have maintained that that same culture, that same style. Uh, and when you're growing up there, all you see is what it doesn't have, right? All the things it doesn't have. Uh -huh. And then as you as you grow and become a man uh, or an adult you realize the beauty that's just you know built into it and it's a you know that's that's those places those little bays and inlets and rivers that's that's my that's my sanctuary that's where i find my peace did you appreciate it rain when you were growing up or you the, couldn't wait to get out of there well the latter for sure but i will say that i grew up on the pamago river uh -huh. and it's huge i mean people from up here it looks like a lake, right? They're used to, to small rivers. And so if you, if you played on the waterway and you liked fishing and things like that, that was kind of the saving grace. Like summers uh -huh. were really fun there because we had this, this very unique uh, natural resource, but uh, yeah, most of us were just dying to get out. And now it's funny because my friends and I that have gotten out are like clamming to get back and find some river property somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's but. like a great place to be from. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um. So, I I noticed. Uh, I mean, I know North Carolina is a big part of your life, but where where did you grow up? 
uh, in New York, in New York, in the city and in the suburbs of New York City. How was that? Uh, it was also, I mean, we, it wasn't like Pamlico Sound or anything, right. but it was a great place. Like the little town I grew up in was a population 5,000, uh, you know, a public high school, football, basketball, all that kind of stuff. Just a, you know, kind of a classic all-American kind of place to grow up, a great place to be from. The town I, I grew up in was Pleasantville, just like the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Only uh, it wasn't in black and white. So, but. so tell me a little bit about your your childhood like what what type of kid was uh, a young steve uh just like a regular kid it was a regular you know you walked to school you know mm -hmm. the snow was up to your your eyeballs you know when you were a little kid um yeah i one thing i will say about my town mm -hmm. um was the high school was better i went to duke university that's how i originally got to durham and uh I would say the high school was better than Duke in terms of the teachers. I mean, I still remember six or seven teachers that I would say absolutely great. And I, I hope that high school is still what it was. I feel like I got, you know, the bulk of my education I got in high school. So that was, that was a, it was a, a great small town upbringing. At that time, what did you want to be? I mean, did you envision this journey for yourself or did you have no, other, I had other no dreams? No clue of that I would ever be a writer or anything like that. I, yeah. I didn't even, uh, I didn't have any idea, you know, yeah. just, I figured Who I'd knows? go to college and, you know, fall into something. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So I know, um, I know with government cheese, I don't know if, um, if I've seen you say this on social media or if, or if it was in the book, but I know that you had, I don't know, at least a little bit of reluctance to to put this story out there. Is that fair to say? It wasn't Diana the one yeah. who, who kind of yeah. like convinced yeah. you to. So what was what was the thing that ultimately two part question? What was the thing that ultimately pushed you over the edge? You'd be like, all right, I'll do it. And then and then secondly, uh, what what was your goal with it once you committed to it? Ah, it's a great question. Um, because it it's a memoir, you know, it's your real story of my real life. Right. Um, my reluctance was, uh, well, like Diana is my girlfriend. She said that she's heard all my stories. Mm -hmm. So she said, you should tell these stories. They're really interesting. People really like them. I thought, ah, come on, you know, everybody's got a million stories. Who wants to hear my dumb stories? You know? <laughs> so, so I really resisted that for quite a while, even, even like six months into writing it, I, I kept looking at it and thinking, is anybody going to give a damn about this kind of crazy stuff? You know? But then after about six months, I started to sort of get with it and start to have some faith in it. And the real reason I, I wrote it was because it's really the story of a writer's journey. You know, it took me like I was 52 years old before my first novel got published mm -hmm. after trying to do it for like 27 years. So I thought there are a lot of people I know from writing The War of Art and the correspondence that comes in off of that. A lot of people with big dreams or that want to be writers, want to be artists, want to take that leap from whatever job they may be in. And um, so I thought that my story might be inspirational to them because it's so full of failure. Right. And it took so long. And I was so lost for so long that I thought, you know, people might read this and think, you know, shit, if he can do this, I can do it. Yeah. So that that was my uh, intention. Well, it's the bumps and bruises that we relate to, right? Like if you're up here on this 
you know, for someone wanting to be where you're at now and you're kind of up on this pedestal or this mountain for them, a lot of times people have this, and I say this to people that I work with too, like these people you look up to don't have superpowers, right? They, 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 they're human, just like you. They had to go through these trials and tribulations. And I think exposing that or opening that up and being vulnerable, like you said, is, is, is key to one, inspiring them, making them feel like they can do it. But then two, also giving them somewhat of a roadmap. It might not be exactly the path they take, but can kind of guide them along the way. Yeah, and I, I do think these days with social media where everything is instant, right? And you think, you know, yeah. if you're 21 years old, you do a viral video. And the next thing you know, you know, you're living in Montecito, California. <laughs> and uh, it's not it's not true. And um, so uh, I thought for me to kind of spell out the, you know, uh, beat by beat what those 27 years were, what they were constituted of would be helpful to people. Absolutely. Take away the, because uh, everybody thinks that you're sort of born on third base, you know? And it's exactly. Not, it's not true. Yeah. Or they don't see, you know, that's the classic, like he was an overnight success, but it's like, yeah. you didn't see the 15, 20 years he was yeah. putting in work on the road. Uh, the, the book to me, well, not to me, I mean, it's structured this way, but it's really about the, the power of a mentor. Like your chapters are based off of these, kind of mentors and guides that you've had along the way, which I think yeah. is also really important. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. When one is going through this journey, they have this thing that they're trying to achieve. How important is it for them to have that guide, that mentor to, to help them along the path? You know, it's, it's funny, Rain, that like uh, when I started the structure of the book, it's divided into seven sections and each one is named after somebody that was a mentor to me. Mm -hmm. But when I started the book, I, that wasn't clear to me at all. It just sort of evolved. And at some point in the book, I thought, ah, this is really about the people that have, that have helped me. And the interesting other part about it that I only sort of appreciated in retrospect as I was writing it was that only like two or three of them were writing mentors. Mm -hmm. The others were just people I knew in my life. Right. Uh, my boss at the trucking company in Durham and a guy that I didn't even, never even knew his last name, who we did migrant labor together, you know, yeah. who became a mentor to me. And, and also I'm sure four or five of these people didn't even know that they were mentors to me. Of and course, I didn't yeah. even know it at the time. <clears throat> That's a good I point. was, it wasn't like they took me under their wing and taught me things. I just sort of watched them mm -hmm. worked for them or worked with them and picked it up. And it was only later thinking back on it that I realized, oh, I really learned a lot from Hugh Reeves or from John from Seattle, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that really is how we do learn. Let me, I'll get a little long-winded here, Rain, on this thing. That's all right, buddy. You know, there's things you learn in school uh -huh. or you can learn from books, but the most important stuff is what I'm starting to call for myself kind of soft skills yes. like how do you start something yeah somebody wants to write a book or write a movie or do any an enterprise like you've done you know so many people can't even start and it took you know right they just think about it they put it off and put it off and put it off that's a skill nobody teaches you how do you start something how do you finish something you know that was a <laughs> big bad. thing for me to get this close to the end and then blow it up you know because i was afraid if I put myself out there, it would fail and I, et cetera, et cetera. 
So that's another skill nobody teaches. There's no class in school that says, mm -hmm. how do you finish things? Or how do you handle the middle of something? When you're, you know, a year and a half into something, you can't see the end. You're already too far in, in terms of sunk costs mm -hmm. to back out and you're panicking. You know, how do you, how do you deal with that? And the way you learn that is from mentors. It's from usually from bosses or somebody that you're working with that you, that when you drop the ball, you kind of turn to them and go, what do we do? You know, and they yeah. take over. And when they've solved the problem, then you ask, you ask them, how did you do that? You know, what did, where did you, what place did you go to in your head? And so I do think mentors are tremendously important because that's where you learn those soft skills that they don't teach you in school. Absolutely. Um, I've got a, th I think about mentors a lot. I've got a, a theory. And so I want to ask you a question. I don't do a lot of these, um, rapid fire. Like, you know, if you only could eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> I don't do a lot of those questions, but potato uh, chips. when I, when, <laughs> when I think about mentors, um, I've, I've said this before. I think about a couple of different types of mentors. One, the one that you work for, like you've said, like a real mentorship, even if they don't understand that they are a mentor, now I think we're in a space, especially now with social media, where you can have what I call kind of digital mentors or mentors from afar, also not knowing people like yourself that show their story and their bumps and bruises on social media that you can glean wisdom from. I think that's kind of a, a, uh -huh. another type of mentor. Yeah. But there's another one. This is a theory that 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 I have uh, that people can also have fictional mentors fictional hmm. characters and stories that like they would love to, to, you, to be their mentor on that. Exactly. So, so um, for me, uh, I grew up an athlete um, uh, coach, Eric Taylor from Friday night lights, the TV show, the movie is awesome. The TV show is equally awesome, even though I was a little reluctant because I love the movie. Uh, but that's a version for, for me, like try, a man who tries to be honest and have uh, integrity, uh, but also like guiding these 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 young uh, kids into into adulthood, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so not to put you on the spot, but if if there were a fictional mentor, someone that you would like in the fictional universe to have helped guide you through life, who might that be? Well, let me answer it in a slightly diff different All way. Right. I'm thinking about there's also fictional mentors kind of like uh athletes that you watch like oh like um totally michael jordan and that series uh i'm blanking on the name you know that 10-part series that he oh did. yeah the last dance like, the last dance so like, good if you watch that and i'm sure that almost everybody that watches it kind of relates to him as a mentor and or also that the uh, kobe bryant's muse which was really about him and i I watch that and I just soak it up, you know, the uh, the level of aspiration that those guys had and the work ethic that they had and even the kind of egomania that they had, Big time. you know, or, uh, you know, you, I, I agree with you. That's mm -hmm. uh, those are great mentors. You just well, Kobe had the, the whole Mamba mentality is what they call it. Yeah, yeah. His nickname yeah. was the Black Mamba. And, and yeah. And I mean, he, you know, rest in peace. That was so tragic, but he is still in influencing people. I see videos of him constantly on social media of him having that influence on, on people yeah. still. I mean, I live in Los Angeles and there are murals all over yeah. town can imagine. that people have just put up spontaneously, you know, of, of him and Jana, you know, his daughter. And uh, so he really had that effect on a lot of people. Majorly, majorly. Yeah. 
Um, let's shift I into a fictional mentor. Let me just go. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think Atticus Finch from uh, okay. To Kill a Mockingbird would yeah. be a key one for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like it. I like it. Um, let's talk about the resistance, the, uh, the, the elephant in the room, the giant R, the capital R. Um, this is something that I know a lot of my listeners struggle. I mean, hell, we all struggle with it, right? Um, but especially like you've already said, anyone that has this idea, this dream in their head that, that they can do something else, they want to do something grander or bigger. And we've also already touched on the, you know, the things we say to hold ourselves back. Why are we so brutal to ourselves? Why do we talk to ourselves so negatively? Well, I don't think it's uh well, let me sort of define resistance a little bit Please. for anybody that hasn't uh, done this. Yeah. Um, like uh, one of the analogies I use is uh, if you can imagine a tree in the middle of a sunny meadow and the tree is, is your dream, whatever it may be, as soon as that tree appears, a shadow is going to appear, mm -hmm. the shadow of the tree in the sunny meadow. And so I don't think we're being creating the resistance out of some evil in our minds or anything it's just a law of nature that yeah. when we have a dream like an equal and opposite effect right like newton's law of thermodynamics or whatever yeah. is, is going to come come in and that that resistance is uh equal and opposite to the dream and i think sometimes to get off subject a little bit we don't even know we have a dream but we're we're experiencing the resistance, and the resist like the resistance will take the form of sometimes um, depression, isolation, anxiety, alienation. We just feel miserable. We're unhappy. We're lost. We're pissed off. We hate ourselves, and we don't even really. And that can lead to addictive behavior or abusive behavior or self-destructive behavior. And we don't even know we have a dream. Like we don't even know that like we really want to make a movie or start a business or, you know, move to some other place and create a life for ourselves. You know, that, that would be a kind of a dream type of life. And uh, so anyway, I got a little bit off subject, but that's, no, that's no, no, what, it's, uh, it, this idea. And I think about this a lot because I have my own journeys or journey fighting against that voice in, in your head and in one's head, the resistance, but also I help, I help people navigate that as well. But thinking about that as it's an inherent part of it all, it's balance, right? It's the, it's, it's the, it, like you said, the shadow to the light uh, so that it, it exists, whether we acknowledge it or not. Right. We don't have to create it. It's there all by itself. It's there all by itself. But then, so by that logic, then the light, the dream is also exists, whether we acknowledge it or yes, not. Yes. So it's really about which one we, we feed, we pay attention to. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes. I mean, I think. In a way. The, 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 well, let's. Well, let me tell you a story that was, it was in uh, the War of Art. Um, where I'm sitting right now, right behind me up the hill here, mm -hmm. is a house that, uh, Tom Laughlin, the actor, used mm -hmm. to live in. I don't know if you, people I'm probably sure. don't remember Billy Jack. It was before anybody's time. But Tom Laughlin, in addition to being uh, an actor, was also a kind of a renegade, unconventional Jungian therapist. Mm -hmm. And one of his theories was people would come to him with cancers and stuff like that. And he would be like the place of last resort. 
where they had already tried every doctor in the world and it wasn't working. And finally they had to go to him because he was, he had a little bit of a crackpot, you know, uh, reputation, but what he would do. So let's say, let's say a lady would come to him and she had some kind of cancer and she was, you know, 71 years old. He would ask her, was there some dream that you had when you were young that you gave up on? And she might say, you know, I always wanted to be a concert pianist. And I was a wonderful piano, piano player, you know, as a kid. And I gave it up when I got married and I have kids, had kids. And so what he would tell her is, start playing the piano again. If you have to rent, you know, get a Steinway, if you have to get a, you know, take it really, really seriously. In other words, he was telling her, concentrate, bring the dream back to life. Start going for the dream. And what would happen is, at least according to him, cancers would go into remission. In other words, the, the, the cancer, the disease sort of came from the shadow, from resistance, from avoiding the dream, because that dream was something that was inside the person wanting to be born, and the person would not let it be born. Mm. So it didn't remain benign, it became malignant, mm. and it would turn against them inside their own body. So I think that uh, when you say uh, it's focus on the dream is the answer to me. Take action after that dream, and all of the other bad shit will go away. This this tends to come up a lot. Is there, is there something, do you think there's something in adolescence or youth that causes us to uh, to kind of bury those those inner desires that we have as a kid. It's really interesting that he says go back to the dreams you had as a kid. Well, I do absolutely, and I think it's it's actually our parents and our teachers and our mentors, with all of the best intentions. You know, if you're a young boy growing up in Little Washington, right, and you say, you know, I want to play center field for the Yankees. You know, your mom and your dad and your teachers say. You know, poor Rain, the guy's deluding himself. He's setting himself up for a terrible fall. Can we convince him to be a garage mechanic and just open his own shop down the street? So they they mean well. Mm -hmm. They're trying to protect us from over-ambitious stuff because how many people are going to play center field for the Yankees, right? Right. But so that goes into our head and we internalize it. And we start to say, you know, I'm not crazy to want to play center field for the Yankees, you know? Um and so we ourselves do that. And also, I think when you're young, I mean, I've heard enough stories where like somebody in high school would be a budding artist, let's say, and one teacher would say to them, would say some negative thing, totally crush their dream. You know, you haven't got it. Give up. Forget it. Right. And that one person would literally, you know, put out the flame. Right. They And years later, they would still remember that person, you know. I remember when Mr. So-and-so yeah. told me I didn't have any talent, you know? So I do think that's what happens when, when we're young. A lot of times we get told we're not going to make it and we believe it. And we, and we stop. Yeah. We stop. And then all. that energy goes negative, goes malignant. So it's not that the resistance doesn't ever stop. I want to, okay. We're going to get into how we defeat the resistance, but it <laughs> seems, it, it seems like, you don't you don't eliminate it. It it persists. No, it never goes away. Never right. goes away. I so can tell you after working for 50 years as a writer, it's just as tough 
today as it is okay for me so as it ever was the the presumption then is that one gets better at, at kind of you know trudging through it or pushing past it yeah yeah i mean okay did you have something you wanted to no i think you i think you did the thing about resistance with a capital r is that it's kind of a phantom it really mm. doesn't have any real strength we endow it with 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 a strength by being afraid of it but if we could just sort of dismiss it or just in an, in other words just sit down and do our work that's all it takes as soon as we start to do that it loses its power over us for that day it comes back the next day but so the the answer is always to me in action like if you're a writer this is the answer to resistance right mm -hmm. here just start pounding these suckers. It feeds off of fear. Exactly. As we start to uh, imagine the worst and listen to the voices in our head that tell us we're no good, that kind of takes us down a rabbit hole. And after 20 seconds of it, 30 seconds of it, two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, we're down the rabbit hole. Forget it. We lost that day. Um, but if we can just at second number one, sit down and do our work it goes away and we're able to do it so i've noticed now culturally i actually noticed this for the first time after the housing crisis 2008 ish but i've seen it now in a much stronger uh, way uh, since the pandemic where people are finally chasing their passions their dreams the one these things that we're talking about when they've been holding it off for so long and one of the main reasons is like well you know you you hold off of that or you don't pursue that because you're looking for financial stability or security or things like that well when that is you know and when that system <laughs> yeah. is destroyed and you're like well if i'm not gonna if i'm gonna be unstable and not have this security i might as well go after what i want to so i've seen this this man you know what they call it the um the um oh there was the name of course there's always a marketing term not the great migration wasn't that oh yeah what was it yeah i know what you it was mean. like last year when everybody was was the great exit what i can't something i'm trying to like that something like that retirement or the oh man that's gonna that's gonna plague me but yeah. the point is that that there was this exodus of people leaving these uh these uh their their full-time jobs if they were still available so for those types of people or anybody at that point where they're like all right i'm sick of this i'm ready to do it first step i think we've established is being self-aware like this is happening this is what i want this is the shadow that's you know preventing it you say do the work, which sounds it so, sounds good in theory, but is there is there an, an actionable step they take? Is it just sit down? Like where do they how do they start? Because we're back to kind of what we said earlier. Um, like anything, can be sort of reverse engineered to get to step number one. Like if you say to yourself, Rain, uh, you know, I want to have a podcast mm -hmm. and I want to have a following. I want to, I want to bring this kind of information out to people. That's the dream. Okay. That's the final dream. So you can sort of work backwards from that and say, well, okay. And I'm sure you did this exactly. Well, what do I need to do first? Right. And first, you know, we need to get some kind of studio, some kind of setup where we can actually, you know, produce podcasts. Then we need to, you know, lay out what exactly is 
podcast number one going to be about? What's number two going to be about? How do a, does the first year look? Is it going to be guests? Am I going to have a guest every time? Mm-hmm. And if I am, who's the first guest? And how do I get to those people? And then you sort of work back to whatever the initial step is. And then it sort of becomes a question of, uh, of self-discipline and self-organization. And let's say, okay, you say the first guest, I want Steve Pressfield. I think he'd be a great guy, blah, 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 blah. So then you start to ask yourself, well, how do I get to Pressfield? You know, <laughs> do I know, you know, can I reach out on Instagram? Can I do what? And, and, and you finally get back to step one and mm-hmm. then just do it. And the other thing I think is that a lot of this sounds airy fairy in the sense that you hear it and you go, well, I'm not going to leave my job. I got a wife and kids or I got a husband and sure. kids. What am I going to do? But, but you can start with an hour a day. Yeah. You know, you can start laying, you know, one brick on top of another and you can even, you know, like in podcasting, you can have a full-time job and still be a podcaster, right? Absolutely. You can certainly write a novel in an hour or two a day, get up at five in the morning and do it, you know, and then go to work. So it is possible to do all that stuff. Um, you know, let me, let me continue here. I'm going to be rambling on, right? If you'll forgive me, but one of the things I think the pandemic did for uh-huh. people in a good way, where you had to stay home and you wound up doing um, everything by zoom. Right. And what that really made people aware of, I think for the first time was that they had to think of themselves in a more entrepreneur as more as entrepreneurs than as employees, you know, because, and also, which is the first step towards following your dream. Cause you always have to be an entrepreneur to do that. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to hand it to you, right? Nobody's going to hire you. You're inventing it yourself as you go along. And the other thing I think the pandemic did that made a lot of people uncomfortable, but it was very positive in the end was they found themselves alone at home in a room with hours in front of them. And they had to say, well, how do I organize this time? I've never had to do that before. I'd go into an office and I had a boss and the boss told me what to do, right? Mm -hmm. Deliver this, you know? So people were thrown back on themselves and their own self resource. And they had to say, well, let me organize my day a little bit. You know, let me, Maybe I should get up really early, go to the gym or go jogging and then start to work a little later, whatever. But in any event, I think some people learned for the first time Mm self-discipline. It was imposed on them by necessity. And I think a lot of them liked it. Mm -hmm. I hope so. And kind of said, ah, this is a real secret here. Mm -hmm. If I can organize my own day and my own week and my own month, then I don't need any of this exterior stuff like a job as long as i can make money somewhere mm-hmm. i think you're i think that's totally right people are people are viewing themselves as entrepreneurs or businesses they they are the business now more than ever and also i think that that what they care about they're getting clearer on that yeah we're seeing yeah. that shift from work where it's like i don't care that there's a slide and a ping pong table at the office like i want my you know uh i want my energy i want my health i want my sanity and so I think they're willing to step out on that limb a little bit more now to protect that and learn the things that they have to learn. Yeah. Um, but the, they get to a point, anyone does, um, as we said, we've, we're, we've talked about kind of how people start things, but when you had t- talked about the, the classes or the skills that should be taught of how to start, how to finish, and also how to like 
navigate the middle, then they get to that point, the middle, right? Uh, which uh, has a lot of different names, the, the messy middle, the dark forest. Uh-huh. It's that, that point uh, where you've started the thing, you're excited about it, but then you start to hit the obstacles that are going to push back against you. Uh, the wilderness, you know, there's a million different, different names for it. So let's, 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 let's transition to a little bit of that because this um, I, I gave a lot of uh, speeches in the past in 2021 about this, all the conferences, their themes were like, you know, rebounding like from the pandemic uh-huh. or like revision or something like that. Uh-huh. And so I had given a speech uh, several times, basically about turning your story around and, and how, when you were in that stage or that state, the pit the, the dark forest, uh, it's hard for people to understand. They think that's how their story ends. Mm. And if you've been through it, you understand, no, this is definitely the classic <laughs> middle, right? This is the, the, the tough part. Um, so let's talk a little bit about when, when people get to that stage, how do they, they think, you know, it's, they're never going to get there. They think that they aren't the one, their dream won't come true. Um, and that they're a failure. Well, let me let me recommend two books right mm-hmm. away for right. anybody that's in. one is by David Mamet. It's called Three Uses of the Knife. Have you ever heard of this book, Ron? Mm-hmm. Right? It's a it's a it's a short book and it's he really gets into this kind of middle passage thing. Three Uses of the Knife by David Mamet. Um and another one is one of mine called Do the Work mm-hmm. that also gets into this kind of middle thing. But sort of the bottom line for me is, again, like we were talking earlier, that just recognizing the fact that there is such a problem, that's the middle, the tough middle, just acknowledging the the fact is a huge plus to begin with. It's sort of like, you know, running a marathon, the point where they say where you hit the wall at 24 miles or whatever it is like what happens at 24 miles supposedly is the glycogen that's the cellular glycogen that you run on runs out and the body has to switch from that to burning fat and Mm -hmm. the feeling is like your whole heart is going to explode you you know that your your legs have turned to lead etc etc but if you're a marathon runner and you know that's coming you have that awareness then when it hits you, you go, oh, this is the, that moment. This is the wall, you know, and you don't panic and you don't freak out. You just say, okay, I know if I keep running for another 90 seconds or 120 seconds, my body's going to switch to burning fat and I'm going to be okay. So it's sort of the same thing, I think, for that middle passage. When you start out, it's great to know it's going to happen. Somewhere in the middle of the thing, you're going to be bogged down. You can't quite see the end, but you're too far from the start. You've already kind of gone through the enthusiasm of getting going. And so the answer is just bear down, just like that marathon runner, and just keep doing the work. Just keep doing the work. At some, It's like the darkness before the dawn, right? The sun will come up. It's just a matter of waiting it out. You know, so that's what that's what I tell myself. Anyway, I know that's going to happen. I know I'm going to crash in the middle, and I just got to just got to wait it out and just keep going. You know, I've never thought about it about being you're far enough away from the start 
being just as problematic as being far away from the end. Uh, but that, you know, if we were to make that into a metaphor, it's like being in the middle of the ocean and you can't see the land you yeah. just left and you can't see the land you're going. And that's scary as shit. You know, even yeah. just thinking yeah. about that right now. Uh, so that's that's that was a little light bulb moment right there, because it's it's clear to understand that it's because you're far from the finish while you're you feel like you're in that that middle space where you're stagnant. And you can't you can't move forward. But I didn't realize that it's also because, you know, you, you're far enough away from the start, which is like the way to flip the script and look at the positive sides. Like you, you just got to keep going. Um, what's what's exciting about the start? is that you get some momentum going, right? right. And you feel, oh, this is exciting. I have a new business. I'm, you know, I'm getting my business cards. I've got my uh, LLC. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've got my first customers. Money is coming in. But then when the novelty wears off and you get into the middle passage, then, you know, all the momentum, you know, fades away and you go, oh my God, what have I done? You know, right. I, so what's the, what's the, what's the, you know, antidote just to, just to keep grinding or is slogging. it like, think about, you know, in the, in the Bible Exodus, when the children of Israel left, they left Pharaoh, left Egypt, left slavery, you know, and they're heading out into the desert following Moses. There was a moment came where they said, Oh my God, what have we done? And they all wanted to go back to slavery you know, where at least they had three square meals a day. Right. And that was like a major crisis, right? Before they finally, you know, why are we going to keep going into the desert to this promised land that may or may not exist? You know, we're starving. You know, this is terrible. And I think that's a natural beat in the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. In any journey, that moment is going to come where you say to yourself, oh, my God, what have I done? And and you want to go back. I'd be and better again, off like that thing story. in the marathon. If you're if you're aware that that moment's going to come from the start, then when it does come, you won't panic. You'll just recognize and you say, "Oh, this is that moment when I'm going to want to go back to slavery." So I better just keep going into the desert yeah. and just stay cool in the pocket. That's a good you know, point. This is really sort of what separates the men from the boys. Moments like this, yeah, is because these are the moments that have no glamour to them at all. Mm -mm. If we're making a movie, we're going to cut over this, right? It's drudgery. It's tedium. There's no reward. It's not, you know, exciting or glamorous or anything. But these are the moments when somebody can sit down and just keep grinding and grinding. Like I'm sure for Kobe Bryant to learn a turnaround jumper from the corner, that was footwork, you know, it was doing it over and over and over and over. And, you know, I'm sure there were many times when he said to himself, what am I doing? This This is crazy, you know. But we in the audience only get to see him when he's mastered it. Right. And we just look at him and we go, wow, Mamba mentality. You know? <laughs> but the Mamba mentality was the ability to go through that grind. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the difference. That is the Mamba mentality. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I want to read a quote. This is a paraphrased quote from you. Um, I think it might've been, it was on another show that you were on, but um, it's about the wilderness and, I, and I'll have you um, just elaborate a little bit more uh, on it. Um, you said we are blind. We're talking about the wilderness. We are blind to it when we're in it. We think our lives are meaningless. We think we are uh, a loss uh, we think we are lost rather, but every passage through the wilderness is a journey home. 
and home is finding our authentic self. Now I've been through this when I made the film um, that kind of defined what I do now for, for a living. Um, and I talk about that a lot. My listeners are, are aware of that, of finding, finding your authentic self. Uh, talk to me a little bit more about what that means and that, that journey home. Uh, well, a, a wilderness passage, like, like, um, government cheese, my book that we're talking yeah. about is really an, all about a wilderness passage, you know, like everybody has at some point you leave the safety of whatever it is, childhood or home or safe job or whatever. And sometimes you don't do it, um, intentionally. Sometimes you get kicked out you get fired, you get whatever it is, and you find yourself in a quote unquote wilderness, you know, where you're, the familiar world is gone and you're in a new world, like when you'd make in the movie, right? Right. You don't have any points of reference anymore. And uh, that journey, which is the hero's journey, is like a, is a classic human phenomenon that happens to all of us probably the classic Western civilization myth or legend of this is Homer's Odyssey. Sure. The story of Odysseus, you know, in his 10 year passage coming home from the Trojan war. But every one of these wilderness passages in our life, just like Odysseus is about returning home. Like right. the last beat of the Odyssey is him returning to Ithaca, you know, where he's the King, where he's from. And, uh, so it's it's encouraging when we're I think when we're on one of those wilderness passages, and a lot of times you don't even know you're on it. All you know is you're lost, right? You know, and you're thrashing around and everything. But eventually, it ends with a kind of a return home, which is where you you finally sort of get through that middle passage we're talking about, and you're and finally you 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 realize what your calling is or who you really are, what you really love instead of what people have brainwashed you to think you ought to love or ought to do. And then your feet are finally on solid ground and you can say, okay, this is what I want to do. This is who I am. You know, I don't care what anybody thinks. This is what I'm going to do going forward. And that's a return home. And it's, if we're on one of those passages and we're panicking or we're just really down on ourselves, it helps to remember that, practically every human being that ever lived mm -hmm. has to go through one or many of these. And it always does come out in the, if you don't, you know, become an utter casualty, you know, you do return home in the end and you do get your feet on the ground. Yeah. I, I, I had that moment for sure. I mean, the, what I do now, Steve, is, is, is the process that I had of, of kind of taking a camera and going around the world and, and, and telling this story I'm not that technically gifted as like a cinematographer or even an editor. And I have felt a lot of that resistance when I was around a bunch of other people with, with cameras and, and, and I hit, I hit a bottom that I was there for a few years and we eventually came out, we sold the movie. It was a, you know, it was a, an indie documentary success. I uh, didn't make a ton of money, but I put it out and I broke even and, and it was positive. But, the, but what I learned along the way was storytelling first, you know, connecting with your audience through your message and the production value can, you don't need to neglect it. But I have a lot of people that chase the bells and whistles and the gadgets and gadgets without getting the message right. And it, nothing exists that way. Right. And so who I help now with all those lessons learned the hard way 
uh, are beginners or content creators, nonprofit uh, directors, uh, solopreneurs, people chasing their passion now, personal brands, not uh, you know Budweiser or Apple making uh -huh. commercials, uh -huh. but small to medium businesses who uh -huh. feel like I can't be a content creator. Yes, you can if you focus on storytelling. So here we are, the storytelling lab. So that didn't all happen until I went through the whole journey and got beat up and banged up and bruised and then came out of it home, realizing who I was, what I had to offer uniquely, and then was able to kind of establish the career after that. So one of the things that I love uh, a lot about your perspective is usually that's all we hear, the hero's journey, the hero's journey. But talk to me about the, the two halves, right? Talk to me about the artist journey that follows after that, because that's what I have lived the past five years ah. of going through the hero's journey and finishing that around 2017. And it informed and influenced what I built and what I am building now uh -huh. from, you know, from that point. And I just think that's such a unique and interesting perspective about the, the second half of life. Yeah, this is, uh, you're like the poster boy for this thing. Right? I'm in it, baby. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, I'll uh, mention another book of mine. This is called The Artist's Journey. Yes. And it, it the point that it makes is that, um, I think we, in a, to a certain extent, we can divide our lives in half. Mm -hmm. And the first half is what I would call the hero's journey. And what that's really about is trying to find your calling trying to find who you are, where you belong on this planet, like for you to, to get to the storytelling lab, you know, to get to that point to say, okay, this is what I want to do. This is who I am. But at that point, I think, and, and the hero's journey is full of a lot of uh, drama, a lot of angst, a lot of agony. It's an ordeal. Right. It's an initiation. And, and it can be pretty dramatic and pretty exciting. You know, you're in all kinds of crazy places and all kinds of crazy things happen to you. Yeah. But at some point, once once you kind of know where you are and who you are and what you want to do, then you become what you go on to a different journey, in my opinion, which I call the artist's journey. And at that point, you say to yourself, like, uh, for me, it was a moment when I said, OK, I'm a writer. I don't give a shit what anybody says. You know, if I ever succeed, this is what I'm going to do. And now your life changes and you begin to add, and your question you ask yourself is, OK, what is my gift exactly? Mm -hmm. What should I be writing? You know, should I be doing movies? Should I be doing, what is it? And then you also have to ask yourself, how do I shape my life? How do I pay for my life? How do I organize my day? How do I organize my year? How do I make myself a professional to, del and to deliver this gift? I'm no longer going to be thrashing around trying to ask myself, what is what am I meant to do? Now I know. But the question is, how do I now put it together as an artist and deliver the stuff so that once it's again, it's those kind of soft skills I was talking about. Absolutely. Where you learn, you teach yourself how to start something, how to get through the middle, how to finish, how to market something. How, what is this? If, if you're a writer, what is a story? What kind of stories do I want to tell? What medium do I want to tell them in? How am I going to get to that medium? Do I need to move to Hollywood? Do right, I going to be in movies? That that kind of thing. So then you're becoming an artist. Now I always envy somebody like Bruce Springsteen or or Bob Dylan or somebody like that. At early on in their lives, they kind of knew what they wanted, right? And for Bruce Springsteen or Bob or any of those guys, it's about making music, right? Yep. So now they can just focus on that. And they don't have to be asking themselves questions like, you know, 
what am I doing with my life? You know, am I wasting, you know, they, they know it. But at that point, they're on their artist journey. And the rest of their life is about producing that their art, whatever, let getting their gift out to the world and making it better and better and better as it goes along. Something I've noticed um, about the way you approach your work, especially lately, is the output. Like when we first started talking about you being on the show was, um, well, put your ass where your heart wants to be. And I remember you messaged me and you were like, uh, hey, sorry, I'm on a deadline for another book. Uh, can we push this back to like end of year or beginning of next year? Um, and especially so with the 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 War of Art series uh, of books that you have, it seems like you're, I mean, so that was two this year. A Man at Arms was like maybe last year or 2021. So this this output, and, and it reminds me of uh, Paul Fink, Paul, was that your mentor? Rink? Yeah, Paul, Paul Rink. Rink. Yeah. Paul yeah. Rink. Was it him that was just like, when you turned and you're like, I finally finished. He's like, cool, start the other one today. <laughs> uh, that was him, right? Yeah, it was yeah. him. Yeah. So my question is about like, how important is that uh, ability or that approach to just be, to just be outputting, creating, doing the work, as you say? Um, I, uh, I noticed you have a book by Seth Godin back there behind you on your. Oh yeah, yeah, I love yeah. Seth stuff. And uh, you know, Seth talks about uh, the dip, right? For he sure, a book yeah. called The Dip. And to me, one of the uh, the worst things that a, that an artist or a writer or an entrepreneur can do for their own sanity is to finish something, put it out there, and then wait for the world to respond. You know, because what's going to happen is. First of all, the world's not going to respond. They don't even know what's out there. Or, you know, maybe if, if you're one in a hundred, it's a success. Otherwise, it's various degrees of failure. <laughs> and so you're sitting around waiting for that to happen. Also, I think that's a very bad way mentally of, of being true to your gift, of being true to what the gods give you, you know. Um, Seth Godin has another book that I completely agree with called The Practice, and yes. what he talks about in that book is that your work should be like, like a practice, like a practice in yoga or a practice in martial arts or any kind of a practice where you never stop. It's a kind of a, uh, it's a, um, it's a ritual that mm -hmm. you do every day. And as soon as you finish a book or a movie or whatever it is the next day, you're on to the next one. And I think that way you never go into the dip. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, for me, it has certainly worked for me. I always like to feel like if I'm six months from the end of a book, mm -hmm. I want to be starting the next one, yeah. at least in outline form or notes or something. So that by the time I get to the end of a book, I'm already, you know, 30 pages into the next one. Mm -hmm. So it's a seamless transition. And, and in that way, I think I'm being true to the higher realm you know to the goddess that's mm -hmm. giving me these ideas and also if the first book fails i'm <laughs> on to the next one you know yeah, yeah, yeah. so i'm full of hope for it's the insurance next and yeah it, it reminds me uh when i was a when i was a younger man I, I boxed for a few years i wasn't interested in really pursuing it professionally but i, I had a few fights uh -huh. 
uh, and my trainer was this country man from Chatham County. And he told me something similar reminds me of this. Basically there are two types of people. One that when they, you know, hurt the other person, they see that they, they've injured them. They see that as their moment to like catch their breath, you know, and, and like sit, you know, sit back a little bit, rest on their laurels is, is would be the uh -huh. cliche there. And the other type that smells the blood in the water, and goes in for the kill at that point. Oh, that's and great. I don't know that, that just, that that's yeah, great. that just always stuck with me. And actually my first knockout came from that moment. My, I got my ass handed to me in the first round. In the second round, I hooked him, sit him against the ropes. And when I saw him buckle, I was like, now's, now's the time if it's ever going to happen. <laughs> but I still, it still echoes in my, in my head when I'm, when I'm thinking about it, it's like, when, yeah, don't, don't sit back. Like you said, and wait for the world to respond. It's another great way to say it. Like go in for it now that you have that momentum. We keep coming back to these same themes, right? Of of, of sitting yeah, down and, yeah, and doing the yeah. work. And I think if you take Seth's uh, approach or perspective on it being a practice, and couple it with yours about being professional, like Hugh Reeve said, like you're delivering a load. That's what you're here to do. Mm -hmm. Then you've got this recipe, and and stop making art this magical thing. Yeah, yeah that you know is you have to have a superpower like i said earlier to to obtain and bring it down to the science and the formula and sit down and do the damn work yeah the other thing is like uh my uh business partner sean coin likes to talk about third party validation mm. which means you know how the audience or how the marketplace responds to whatever you've done right you finish a book and you go out there and what he says, and I absolutely believe this, is that you need to wean yourself off that concept of third-party validation. And it is addictive. Get it, you know? The the bottom line is, what do you think of what yeah. you've just done? Yeah. And almost always you'll say, it could have been better. <laughs> I gave it my, it could have been better, but let me go on to the next one. Yeah. And I'll try to make it better than that. Um, it's It's a real vice and a real danger to let others decide how good you are mm -hmm. or how worthy your mm -hmm. last work was. Only you can really decide that. It's really hard to do because naturally we want to get good feedback and all that. But even if you don't get good feedback, you can if you can learn to judge it yourself and then keep going. Again, it's Seth's idea of a practice. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't matter. Today you did your yoga practice and you weren't really very good in the warrior pose, you know? Okay. That's all right. That was today. Tomorrow we'll be back and we'll do it again a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And, and our life, uh, I had a moment a few years ago where I'm kind of, I'm a gym kind of person. You know, I go to the gym every sure. morning and I sort of, uh, I fell off the wagon. I'd been like three months. I didn't go to the gym. Right. Been there. And yeah. I was moaning and groaning to this friend of mine. It was a woman. And she said, and she was also a gym person. And she said, no, no, no. She says, that's the wrong way to look at it. This is for us, for you and me. She said, this is a lifetime commitment. So three months. Okay. We fell off for three months. All right. We'll get back. And a year from now, we'll have completely forgotten that three months. So I think that's the same concept of a practice mm -hmm. that, you know, for me as a writer, this is my lifetime thing. I'm never going to stop. That's why right. I'm, I am productive. Um, the, it's it's its own reward, whether a book does well or not. The the creating it, the whole process is its own reward. And I think the more you can think like that, the saner you'll be, and the more resilient you'll be. 
I think I think one thing that people and I have been here, I might still be here at times. One thing that holds people back <clears throat> is this idea of like it's too late or it's passed uh, me by, yeah. right? Starting late. And that's why I particularly, and I've always struggled with that. I have unrealistic expectations sometimes on myself. We can get into the psychology of my uh, upbringing uh-huh. later, but, <laughs> but, but um, that's one of the things that's so inspiring to me about you sharing this in government cheese of like how long it really took. And, and there was a conversation I heard, you know, Mark Marin, the pod, the comedian yeah. and uh-huh. podcaster Mark. And I think it was Louis CK was on his show. And both of them have put in work for decades and it took about 25 years for them to both reach this status that they're at. And they were talking about that concept and they're like, why wouldn't it take 25 years to do the (laughs) things that we're doing to do something at this level? Like, of course it does. Sure. We always look at the overnight successes or the people that got lucky at 20 or 25, but like, why wouldn't something this great, this big take 25 years? And it, that was a really, I remember that moment specifically uh, and vividly because I was like, that's such a great kind of fresh perspective on like, yeah. of course, anything worthwhile is, is going to take, take a long time to build. So the question directly is like, it, is it ever too late? If it, if it happens, the thing you want, could it ever possibly happen too late? I, I don't think so. And I, I think that the idea of, oh, it's too late. I'm too old is a form of resistance. It's a thing that our brain is telling us our bad brain to stop us from doing it. Like going back to uh, to my friend, Tom Laughlin, who told the 71 year old lady, take up the piano and take it up seriously. It's not, it's not too late. Not that she will be, become a, you know, playing at Carnegie Hall, but she'll, she can get in touch with her real self, mm-hmm. with her authentic self that way. And that's one of the reasons I did want to write government cheese since it took me like i say till i was 52 years old before i published a book that that will you know people can be inspired by that you know and say you know hey it's not too late in fact another story i had a friend when i first got out to hollywood as a screenwriter and uh, i remember he called me his name was roger jacobs he was another screenwriter and he called me up one time in uh, in a state of panic that he felt like he was over the hill i'm over the hill it's too late i'm over the hill i said roger how old are you he said 22 so but it's we all think that way you know um not true maybe it's true if you want to be a professional athlete right yeah 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 47 years old (laughs) but if you're doing anything else but hey man i i mean i had those dreams once upon a time and i still play in a very competitive soccer league every week and so i i get to keep pursuing that sure i'm not playing professionally but you don't have to fully give up on the dream uh, to still have it be a part of your life um how you doing on time buddy uh i'm probably about close to the, the time when we ought to um get down to the last few questions okay last points. few questions yeah um and they're all more because i gotta get to work you know that's what we're talking about do the work yeah. steve yeah don't be sitting here bullshitting with me all day <laughs> um okay so from a storytelling perspective, one of the things I love about your work uh, and uh, feel influenced by is is your nonfiction and fiction work, and that's something that I, I aspire to have. I, I wrote my first book last year; it's a nonfiction book, but I have a lot of uh, stories that I want to get out. So, from a storytelling perspective, is there a difference in your in your approach to a fictional story and writing nonfiction? Um, obviously, you know, there is because it's a whole different medium, Mm -hmm. but 
I really do believe that uh, I have a saying, which is nonfiction is fiction. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is nonfiction goes by the same rules as fiction. And what I mean by that is that when you say nonfiction, let's say it's a you're writing the life of Harry Truman, uh, a biography of Harry Truman, or you're writing a story of your grandmother who came over from Ireland and, you know, had 11 kids and became the mayor of Pocatello, Idaho, right? Something like that. Or you're writing a self-help book or something like that. The rules of storytelling, I think, still apply in the sense that every story has to have a hero. Every story has to have a villain. Every story has to be about something, right? It has to have a theme. Every story has to have a climax. We got to have a, it has to build to the end. Most stories are in, in three acts, beginning, middle, and end, right? So the same sort of um, principles apply, I think, to, to nonfiction as they do to fiction. It's, of course, not many people know the principles of fiction to begin with, <laughs> but if they did... They would they would see how they apply. Um, there's another Stephen out there who happens to write a little bit, uh, who has a similar line that says, "Fiction is a lie, and good fiction is the truth inside the lie." Does that sound ah. similar? Ah, I like yeah. that. Stephen, Stephen King wrote King, that in, huh? in in on writing, uh, and ah, so yeah. when you had said that, I was hoping you would say your your line. Ah. I was like, oh, that's that's very similar. Ah. All right, um, we're in a different world now. Um, and like I said, I uh, wrote my first uh, book last year, self-published. Um, I know my audience. I knew I'd have to do most of the marketing, so I was comfortable with that. And I'm reminded of when uh, the story, you brought the book, I think it was your third novel, to Marty. And there was like basically somebody who who who, who wanted the my next- agent in the book. Your agent, right. sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, who um, somebody was looking for the next big writer. And you missed the, or, you know, Marty or you or whomever missed the, missed, missed the boat and it was like done. So it was a lost cause, right? Gatekeepers is where I'm getting. Uh -huh. So that's such a tragic story for me to hear that. And it was like, okay, so what? It never, it just never went anywhere because that one person didn't select you. I feel like we're in a space now where we can kind of, this whole conversation has been about this theme kind of, where we can kind of take charge now and bring it to our people. Uh, has... Are we still like how has the world changed now for writers, for any artists that are trying to create something compared to when it used to be you had to be picked by that sometimes one singular person to get your art out there to the audience? Yeah, you're well, you're right. It completely rain. It's a whole other world, you know. It's a long tail world, as they say, you know, where the bookshelf on Amazon is infinite, right? There are what a million new books a year being brought out, self-published, this and that and the other. Right. Um in the in the old days, there were the gatekeepers. You know, you, there only were five big publishers, and they only had a certain number of right. editors. And if you didn't get through them, you were going nowhere. Um, I mean, it was a good in the sense that if you did get through, you were going to, you know, get some exposure, and people were going to know you were there. But it's a whole other world now, where we have to be our own marketing people, like you say with your book that was self-published. Um, you know your you know your audience. You know that's where you're going, and you know you have to market it yourself. And uh, and there are also breakout books, you know, that start with you know somebody's own followers, you know, particularly some novels that just yeah. break out and other things too. So it is possible to have that happen. But um, 
So now we have both worlds. We have mainstream publishing and we have regular publishing. And I'm sure it's the same in the music world, although I don't know anything about that. Yeah, that, that probably the movie world flipped. too, I imagine. Yeah. Well, I think it's about adapting and adjusting. I mean, they're all different than they were decades ago. And yeah. some people cling to the past and don't like the way they're changing and other people adapt to it and realize how they can still create their, their art and get it to the people who love it. Yeah. And if you don't, we have no choice. It is a new world and we got to live by the rules. Absolutely. Uh, so what's next? What are you working on these days? What are you looking forward to in 2023, which is a real year that we're in? <laughs> well, you know, you, you mentioned this, this book before a man at arms, which was, uh, came out like, I think a year and a half ago, yeah. I'm working on a sequel to this right now. Love it. Yeah. Really enjoyed that one yeah. in, the, in the ancient world. All right. Well, Steve, I appreciate your time, man. I'm glad we uh, we finally got it together. I'm sure you got a lot more of these coming up. I've been seeing you putting in the work out there in social media land on your Instagram, your TikTok. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing my best, Rain. But <laughs> thanks for having me. A couple of Absolutely. North Carolina boys. We oh, yeah, we know what that's all about. Absolutely. No, great. Thank you very much for having me. We'll do it again sometime. All right. Thanks, brother. OK, my name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow, and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a story coaching and consulting company that builds online education, in-person and virtual training, and digital products that help businesses master storytelling to find their ideal customers and market to them effectively. You can learn more at sixsecondstories.com and purchase the book Six Second Stories at Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or rainbennett.com slash sixsecondstories. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.